Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I want to talk to you this morning about hedonism's house. Doesn't seem like maybe, anyway, I'm not going to say that. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as soon as I find it, I'll give you a reading and then we'll take a look at this together. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Take our reading from verses 1 to 11. 1 to 11. And, uh, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. It, now, I don't know if you're marking your Bible or do stuff, but that little phrase is kind of in a, a parenthesis there. It's, it's not without significance. He's indulging himself with wine. He's trying to find a way to cheer his body, but his wisdom remains. I think that's, that's important. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now let's make a short prayer together. Father, we pray that you bless your words to our hearts. And Lord, help me to help me to say these things the right way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Solomon's sermon here in Ecclesiastes is kind of a testimony sermon. Have you ever heard an old an old time old man preacher preach? Somebody who is, you know, old, over 45. And sometimes old preachers, they kind of go into storytelling mode and they just talk about things that happened in their life. Sometimes this is a wonderful experience. Sometimes it's kind of annoying because you heard it before. Now, I went, I, I went to a, a little Bible conference here in the area not long ago. And this old guy from uh, Belleville, Michigan, which I think is down around the great city of Detroit, as I like to say. And his name is John Vaprazan. John Vaprazan, he's probably, he's in his mid-80s, still pastoring the Metro Baptist Church in Belleville. 
and he has uh, his father came here from Hungary and uh, I listened to him talk I heard three sermons that day and his sermon really wasn't a sermon it was a testimony of how he talked about his work in the gospel and he told all these warm-hearted stories about how he had had conversations with people told them, told them about Christ and opportunities God had given him to preach the gospel in Russia before communism fell, how he went home as an immigrant to his native Hungary where his father was from, and how there he had opportunities to go and preach in some small churches and some large churches, and he told the gospel story to people. And by the time he was done testifying about what God had done in his life, I was ready to leave that little house of worship and charge hell with a squirt gun because I was so encouraged and roused about the gospel. So testimonies are good. Amen? And in Ecclesiastes, we have Solomon's testimony about his own experience. What he learned. He got to a place in his life when he was, he was disenchanted with life and he began to search for pleasures. He's looking for meaning of life. In chapter 1, we saw how he was frustrated by there's just this repetitive cycle. If you do something great, people forget about it. And then they think they discovered new something new when you discovered it before, just in this cycle. And he says there in the end of chapter 1 that this work that God has given man, this work of discovery, is an unhappy business because it's frustrating. Because the more you know... <coughs> the less you wish you knew, you know? So in chapter two, Solomon switches gears and he says, you know what? I tried the way of wisdom over here. I tried to find more knowledge. I tried to do better things. And now he turns to the baser appetites, the kind that we all like. He turns to the works of his hands and the pleasures of his body. And the first thing that he does is he decides to give wine, alcohol, a solid try. Maybe he grew up with a teetotaler for a father, like I did. Here he is. He's a man of full years. He's king. He has access to the best moonshine and hooch money can buy. And so he gets involved and he gives himself to it to try to find cheer there. He tries to find the joy. Listen to what he says here. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Instead of laughter, it is mad. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. To find a way to be happy with alcohol. Now, the first thing Solomon decides here is to <coughs> enjoy himself. And so the first thing we get into, now i got to go back a little bit and talk about hedonism a little bit. Now, one Bible commentator he takes this section, he talks about the four rooms in Hedonism's house. That's a guy named Sean O'Donnell. I'm borrowing his idea. Four rooms in Hedonism's house. I'm also borrowing his outline. And I'm also borrowing every word that he said. <laughs> just, for, just for transparency's sake, that way I don't get dinged for it later on. Not quite every word, but the idea is, is solid from him. The first room in this house of pleasure that Solomon enters is this house of hedonism. And I do have good news for you. We're only going on a two-room tour this morning. Only a two-room tour. The first room he goes to is what O'Donnell calls the wine chamber. 
Solomon gives us, re, he, he gives us the reason that everybody uses when they begin to pursue pleasure through the use of alcohol, or as I have in my notes here, or to, to pursue, the, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. He tries to find cheer for himself through wine. Now, I think it's a well-established fact that drinking of alcohol is not a sin. It's not a sin to, to consume it. What is a sin is to become drunken because we have to be cautious with alcohol, just like we have to do with all pleasures, is they can overwhelm us and consume us. Proverbs 20, verse number one reminds us that whoever is, that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You have to be thoughtful about it. Now, we live here in northern Michigan. How many of you guys in your house somewhere you got some kind of firearm? Would you say amen? Now, shout out your address real loud. <laughs> now, you, now, guns can bring you a ton of pleasure, can't they? I have killed so many CATs in my life. It has made me... <laughs> guns can bring you a lot of pleasure. I've shot tin cans. I've shot sporting clays. I've shot targets. I've shot deer. I've shot rabbits. I've shot squirrels. I've shot... Uh many other items <laughs> and i have I, they can bring you a lot of joy but a gun in the hand of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl i got my first gun when i was nine hunting by myself when i was 10. i mean you can have a lot of fun with the gun but you have to be careful with it too don't you i accidentally shot out the window of my dad's 1969 Jeep Commando one time with the BB gun. And he said, why'd you shoot the window out of my truck? I said, I wasn't aiming at it. I was aiming at the can I had sitting in front of it. <laughs> so just like a gun has to be respected, so must alcohol. You have to be cautious with it because before you know it, it can overtake you. It can overtake you. Now, the Bible tells in Proverbs chapter 31 that wine does indeed, alcohol does have the power to cheer the heart. If you've ever partaken of it, you may know there's sort of a, a warm flush that you can experience. Or you can have this quickening of the pulse because something new is coming into your body. There can be a calm stupor or a massive chill pill, you might say, that you can receive from consuming alcohol. But you have to be cautious. Alcohol is every man's joy bringer. Now, if you go home today and you pop open, you know, a, a can of beer this afternoon to recover from live nativity. I had mine last night. <laughs> I'm teasing. I got to go back to my notes. I forgot what I was going to say. Well, you may go home and crack open a beer. I want you to know something. The poorest dude in the county and the richest man in the county probably are doing the same thing. It, it's, it's universal. It's not limited to class. It's something that we everybody can have access to. If you live here in Sheboygan, if you ever bought gas in Sheboygan, every gas station in Sheboygan, right by the checkout, has this little, this little thing of fireballs. You ever seen them? 99 cents. So, I mean, if you're poor or wealthy, everybody has access to it. And so Solomon decides, I'm going to give myself to the pursuit of this. But you have to be cautious, my friends, <clears throat> is alcohol can enslave you. You've got to be cautious about it. 
It can overtake you. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he says that everything, there is nothing that's unlawful for me, but not everything is expedient. He goes on to give the warning that I will not be brought under the power of anything. I have, I have a friend. He's a, he, was, he was a, I think he still is a pastor in Texas. And uh, he grew up with a father like mine who was a teetotaler. His grandpa had been a, had been a drunkard. And uh, that when you grow up with, a, with somebody who has an alcohol problem, that really can affect the way you feel about alcohol in, in a big way. It pro- probably should. But my friend, he said him and his wife, they went out to a restaurant and they decided, you know, they're they're you know over 21. They can do what they want. They decided to try some wine coolers at a restaurant. And he said, she had one and I had one. She didn't like it at all. But I, he said, I liked it so much. He said, it was, it was, like, it was like the missing link. He said, I realized in that moment, I, could, I, can't, I can't drink. Because for him, it was going to be a problem. He could see that about himself. And my friends, you have to be cautious about these pleasures. It doesn't just have to be alcohol. It could be any number of things. You've got to guard yourself. Use the things that God has given to you. Enjoy them, but be cautious in the using of them. If drink is what you feel that you need to make it through every day, you're sacrificing your money, your relationships, and your future, or it's hindering your work, offer you this caution, you're heading in the wrong direction. You're going down a path that is going to be hard to get off of in the future. Now, all the benefits that Solomon learns about alcohol, however, as we all well know, is that the benefits, the joys, the pleasures are only temporary because the booze runs out, the buzz fades, and the happy feelings fly away. And now what are you going to do? So Solomon tries to find pleasure, the satisfaction, some meaning in one thing. And when he doesn't find it, he does what we all do. He changed the channel to try a new avenue of joy. Here's a little ditty. I, I, I won't tell you where it came from, but what did he find about alcohol? All of the beer, even if you drink every drop, provides only momentary cheer. But the sad days won't stop. You can drink your blues away for a few days, but they're going to come back. You're going to look for meaning in other places, which takes us to the second room, which means the sermon is half over. If you're happy about that, say amen. That wasn't a good enough amen. <laughs> the second thing Solomon turns to is to something more tangible. He turns to the garden room. At our house in Oklahoma, where we, where we lived, we, are, we had a back room at our house. It was all windows. There was no heat and no AC out there. In the wintertime, not a problem. Summertime, no AC, a little bit hot. That's why we made it that the kids' game room. <laughs> and so they froze and sweated out there, you know, according to the season. So Solomon turns from something that he can consume to make himself happy to something he can produce to try to make himself happy. He turns to something that's going to last. He takes the natural elements and he creates gardens. Remember that Adam in the Garden of Eden, that's where God placed Adam and Eve to dress it and keep it. And so he begins to take the natural world in which he lives and to make it better. He begins to create the proverbial 
backyard paradise. Remember that classic film, The Karate Kid? Daniel LaRusso, and he gets tangled up with the maintenance man at these rundown apartments. Mr. Miyagi. And Daniel-san makes his journey to Mr. Miyagi's house to do some work. And when he enters Mr. Miyagi's backyard, what does he find? Oh, such a wonderful garden. Elevated walking platforms, fish ponds, trees crafted and, and nurtured and, and bent and twisted in just the most beautiful place you can imagine. A garden of paradise, a garden of ease. And so Solomon begins to create for himself an environment of beauty all around him. The Bible says that he made himself houses. He planted himself vineyards. And in case you want to know what this is like, we could call these cottages on the lake. Homes on the river. You know what I'm saying? He, he's making himself someplace that he can really enjoy. Makes himself something that makes him want to get up in the morning and go outside. He made parks. He planted fruit trees for himself. My friends, I want you to think about that statement, fruit trees. What a great thing it is to have fruit trees in your yard. Fruit trees, apple trees, pear trees, peach trees, cherry trees, chicken trees. <laughs> there was a guy in Arkansas I knew, and they had this little, they're called catalpa trees, catalpa trees. And he had five of them in his yard. And he said, I planted those when I bought this place. I said, why? He said, because the catalpa worm is irresistible to smallmouth bass. Because there's this worm that goes, and here's a guy who's really thinking. He's planting trees to provide these worms for him so he can catch fish in the future. Now that man was on the narrow path to heaven, amen? That's thinking, buddy. So he made for himself this glorious place. And what Solomon does is he basically exerts all his power to make his earthly habitation a glorious place. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse number 1 tells us that when Solomon, he built first for himself a temple, a place to worship God, and he spent seven years on it. Seven years building a temple to worship God. And then he turned his attention to building for himself a home, and he spent 13 years building his own home. 13 years. So Solomon exerts all of his power, all of his attentions now to making his home heaven on earth. What a place Solomon's home must have been. But he goes even further in verse number seven. As a part of this, in order to get the work done that he needs to get done, it says that he acquired for himself both male and female slaves. He obtained servants in great number. John Gill quotes one historian here who says that the number of Solomon's household laborers, garden-tending crew, his maintenance department was 48,000 people. You say, wow, that's, that's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. But he's the king. He has vast wealth. Number three, the third room we'll enter later on, is the treasure room, which tells us how incredibly wealthy Solomon was. He acquires 
whomever he needs. Now, within the, the slave trade, you might say, there are different categories of slaves. There's your regular, run-of-the-mill, Terry kind of slave, who is just basically good for everything. <laughs> there, there are these slaves who are, you know, they're good for, you know, digging ditches. There are slaves who are, are, are good for fixing their roof. But within the slave category of this ancient time, there were people, there were slaves who were very highly skilled. In the Roman Empire, they had slaves who were their accountants, their bookkeepers, their secretaries and transcriptionists. I mean, they had great skills. So Solomon, he amasses for himself every possible kind of person he's going to need to make his personal world paradise. With enough manpower, you can almost achieve anything. Think about what we've done to our church in the last two weeks. With enough brain power, manpower, and organization, we transformed a fairly sterile building into what? Bethlehem. One lady passed through there. I think Patty told us last night. She came through and she said she was struck by how similar it was to things she had seen in the Middle East. Striking. I took a friend of mine, he came through, he, and he was uh, outside, and I said, why don't you come in and take a look? He walked through, and he paid us the highest compliment probably. He said, this looks just like the sets of The Chosen. I mean, we really pulled off something significant. With enough manpower and ingenuity, you can do a lot of things. So Solomon, he is creating something glorious for himself. He's creating it for his own personal pleasure. He fills this garden with animals. Picture a great personal zoo with his own camel. Two humps and one humps. <laughs> but does this do it? Does this satisfy him? Does the construction of substantial and permanent works dedicated to his own pleasure, does that succeed? Does that win the day? Does that make him happy? So now what? We're going to have to go to the third room because I see where I made my note to stop. The treasury room. Money. Ah, money. If I could just get a little more money, that'll do the trick. How many times have you thought that? If I could just get a few more bucks in the bank, I'll have it. If I can just get some more money, that'll make things better. If I can just, we all get in that cycle. Now, money is something we have to have, isn't it? We have to have it. It's essential to make life go around. You got to have money to pay the bills. You got to have it. Solomon decides, now I'm going to turn my attention to getting all the dough gathered up that I can. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 26, Solomon the Bible tells us how incredibly and fabulously wealthy Solomon became. All the money in the world. Does the money satisfy? It does not. Now it's amazing what some people will do for money. Or because of the promise or hope of getting a few more dollars. I, this is, this is going to be funny. I got, but I have to prepare you guys for it. You ready? The pursuit of money can make some people Lululemon. 
Now, <laughs> thank you. Now, if I had said the pursuit of money can make some people Lulu, how many of you guys would have got that? A little crazy. A Lululemon is something different, isn't it? We were talking to one of the girls uh, last week, and they were talking about some Lululemon stuff that they had purchased with their own dollars. Thank God. <laughs> Quite expensive stuff. The pursuit of money can make someone crazy. They can become possessed by it. But riches, Proverbs warns us, riches make themselves wings and they fly away. They can be lost in a moment. I was pastoring in Arkansas in 2008, the end of the uh, of Bush the Bush the second. Uh, the dude from Texas was he Herbert Walker? Was he W? He was going out of office, and you know Barack Obama was became our president, and we had that financial turn down, and we had a, a fair number of people in our church who had pretty good investment accounts, and one guy who I thought he don't have two pennies to rub together which means you should never judge a book by its cover. I thought this guy was poor as Job's house cat, you know. And uh, But he was talking in the lobby. He was incensed because he had lost in that day over 30000 bucks in one day. He was like, he's like, trying to get a call through to my accountant, you know, to get the, to stop the bleeding. Loss of money. So finally got it, got it stopped. I had another friend who was a, a preacher down in Louisiana. He said he lost about $50,000 in that turn down. And he spent the next 15 years trying to get it back. He said, well, you get enough money tucked away somewhere, it'll be safe. Makes itself wings. Flies away. Flies away. I heard, I heard somebody in the church mention this week to somebody else who was sick. And they said uh, it's, a person can spend most of their life savings in the last six months of their life trying to stay alive. Riches just flying away. That's why I think you should give it to the Terry Basham International Ministry Fund. <laughs> Turn those dollars into souls. <laughs> if you're listening on the internet, that's a joke. <laughs> Money's not going to get it done. If you have a lot of money, a lot of the responsibility comes with it. If you have a lot of money, you have a lot of friends, a lot of taps on the shoulder. Interesting. Sean O'Donnell says in his commentary, Gold is cold. It can't touch you, embrace you, or make love to you. Money won't cry with you when your heart is broken. And worst of all, money is happy in anybody's hands. Anybody's hands. Drug dealer, preacher, doesn't matter. Money is happy wherever it goes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his, uh, not in his book, but Eric Metaxas quoting Bonhoeffer in his biography of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer said he was killed. He was a, how many of you guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? Anybody? I'll give you a brief, a brief synopsis of it. He was a, a Lutheran minister in Germany. He was there when the Third Reich took over. He was a part of some, uh, uh, some, um, some schemes to have Hitler assassinated to save the, to save the nation. And uh, he split the, the Lutheran church from the state church into the confessing church. And for his crimes and his writings, he was put in prison. He was actually executed by the, Nazi, by the Nazis uh, just nine days before Germany surrendered. Just nine days. He wrote, he wrote some great stuff. The Bonhoeffer said this about money. He said, money is dirt. 
You either stand on it or lay under it. Thought that, I always thought that was a striking statement. Money opens doors, but it, have you guys experienced that how money opens doors? Money opens doors. You want to go to Universal Studios? What's it going to take to open the door? Money. You want to go watch the Detroit Pistons play? Does Detroit still have a basketball team? <laughs> Just teasing. Just teasing. You want to go watch the Pistons play? It takes money to open the doors. You want to get into the universities? It takes money to open the doors. Money can open a lot of doors for you, but money cannot open the door to heaven. This is where I'm going to put this thing to a stop. You can't buy your way into heaven. The door to heaven is open permanently because the entrance fees to heaven have all been paid. They've all been paid, not by you and not by me. They've been paid by Jesus Christ. He has paid the price so that everyone who believes can go into heaven. He's done all the work. Augustus Top Lady wrote in his hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Could my zeal no longer know? Could my zeal for God be without diminishment? Only faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 5-6 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his, through His mercy and grace He has saved us. You say, well, I have a lot of sins. I think I need to do some penance for them. I need to do some suffering for my sins. You do not. Jesus Christ did it all. He paid for all of your sins upon that cross. Charles Spurgeon said that when Christ was hanging on the cross, all the, the wrath of God laid up, the collective wrath due to every unbeliever placed upon Christ and God the Father crushed Christ and bruised him on your behalf. It's almost like he put on a uniform that had your name on it and went through the trial, the condemnation and the sentence and the suffering bearing your guilt to the cross. And there he died paying the full price for sins because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid the full price. And if you'll call upon Christ and believe that Christ rose from the dead, if you will believe that Jesus died for you, if you will entrust yourself to the care of Christ, Christ will save you. He will rub all the sins out. He will take your sinful record, no matter how long it is. It doesn't matter. Listen now. It doesn't matter if you got 500 misdemeanors, 500 felonies, or if you've committed capital crimes that mean you should be put to death. Christ will forgive all of those sins. take you into the glory world when this life is over. Christ is the Savior of sinners. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, he said, is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus is the Savior of sinners of whom I am the chiefest of sinners. The chiefest of sinners. God knows all your sins 
He knew what they were before you ever did them. He knew what you would do. And he still sent Christ into the world to pay for your sins. What drove him to do that? Love. Amazing love, how can it be? Amazing love. Jesus died for sinners. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can go into heaven because the door to heaven has been opened. You may say, well, you know, I got to do this, I got to do that. You don't have to do anything. Only believe. Only believe. In Christ and he will have you. You can't, you can't write any checks big enough to get yourself into heaven. You can't do anything. Christ is the Savior. Christ is the Savior. Well, I'm tempted to turn over and read some scriptures to you, and I guess I will just do that. It's only 1130. Let's see if we can make it to 12. Look at Roman. Listen to Romans 3. And I, I, just, I just want you, I want you to, if you don't get anything else that I said, get, get this. This is Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and have and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that's declared innocent, by His grace as a gift. This is available to you through the redemption in Christ Jesus. That's the payment made for your gift. God put forward as a, ESV says propitiation here, NIV says atoning sacrifice, let's read it that way, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that might, so they might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our good works? What becomes of our attempts at righteousness? What becomes of our regular Sunday morning church attendance and prayer and going to prayer meeting and giving in the offering? What about all those works? What kind of, it is excluded. Doesn't count. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If I had the capacity to have a shout and hallelujah fit, I'd do it right now. But I don't have it. It ain't in me to do it. But that text of scripture says that I don't have to do a blasted thing to have peace with God except believe. Just believe. I don't have to shape up. Makes me and saves me. And as he picks me up from the miry clay, he starts knocking the crud off. It's he that, is, that does it. Now listen to the rest of this. Verse 30. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Through faith. Justify. And if you want to know more about it, read chapter 4, and you'll see that Abraham justified by faith too. 
All you got to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus. Now, I know you guys are shrewd people. Shrewd. Shrewd. You're smart. And you th- and, you're, and something inside of you says, it cannot be that easy. It can't be that good of a deal. But it is that good of a deal. It is that good of a deal. Because God, he has flung open that door wide. If you'll put your faith in Christ, you can pass into that place of salvation and be saved once and forever. Secured for all eternity. Once saved, always saved. Amen? You only got to get born once to be alive. You only got to get born again once too. <laughs> born again. Well, let's make a prayer together and then we'll go down to the church and get our stuff back. Amen. <laughs> now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to talk to you. Just talk to your heart for a second. I want, I want to ask you something, sir, ma'am, young person. Have you put your personal faith in Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked Christ to save you? Do you, have some, do you have some kind of personal assurance that you know Christ? I don't mean do you feel like you're saved because we don't always feel like we're saved. I'm talking about, do you remember a time or kind of approximate time of when you put your faith in Christ? If you have, I want you to know that was good enough. But if you have never done it on purpose, and you realize it today, you could do it now. You could say to Jesus, you could say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for me. I'm entrusting myself to you. Please forgive me. And he will. If I wanted to ask for a bunch of testimonies, I could I could ask for a dozen testimonies right now of people who've experienced that. And they will all stand up and say, that's how it works. And every person here who's a Christian, who's been born again, they, they want you to ask Christ to be your Savior. And maybe, maybe you've been going to church with us for a long time and you've been, you know, you, you've been pretending to be a Christian. You've been around so long that you think, well, everybody thinks I already am a Christian. If I become a Christian now, people will talk about me. We will talk about you. We'll talk about how great it was to see you come to personal faith in Christ. This room is filled with a, with a bunch of saved sinners who have failed God in, in a hundred ways, more than you can even know. And they're always happy to see somebody come to Christ because they've come to Christ. They know what it's like to be forgiven. They know about grace. Call out to Christ and he'll save you. Now I'm going to pray. To, I'm going to pray. Then we'll stand to be done. We'll have a small benediction. Heavenly Father, the temptations of this world are many. So many things that want to get into our hearts and pull our affections away from you. We're tempted to try to find um, meaning in life outside of of you and your son. The flesh hungers and pines for things in in ways that are incredible. But Lord, 
Help us. Help us to learn from Solomon's testimony when he says, what did I find over there? Did I find something substantial? No, emptiness. Emptiness, emptiness. He, he turns to all the places that we would turn and he finds emptiness. Dear Lord, deliver us from him. Help us to heed his, heed his testimony. And Father, I pray that those who are here who don't know Christ, they have never called upon him that they would right now. And Father, if they don't do it right now, I pray that you would trouble their heart and leave them disturbed in their spirit until they do. Look up to heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, we're going to leave this place now. we got a lot of work we got to do. And I pray that you help us with that. And Father, all those folks who got to hear the gospel Friday and Saturday, Lord, that seed that we were able to plant into their heart, and Lord, you, you made that possible. Our church's church covenant says that we believe that our church has been created by the Holy Spirit. And this creation of your spirit called Faith Baptist Church has been able by your spirit and by your truth to make a make a big statement for the gospel's sake. And I pray, Lord, that you'll bless it. And Lord, I, as we help us to sow in hope, help us to be ever hopeful about the future of seeing people come to Christ. And Lord, I look forward to, to hearing a people saved. Maybe see some people come worship with us and see them be baptized and, and join up with us, Lord. And we thank you so much for working through us. Help us to ever be a gospel light. I pray these things in, in the name that's above every name, the name of Christ. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen?